On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, Hamilton is looking at $122 million in deficit potentially as a result of COVID. You know that. How much is Burlington looking at being behind? They're asking the government's higher levels of government for money. You may be surprised at what the figure is. We're also going to talk about working from home. Is this the new normal now that things are opening up? Is everyone going back to the office or are they going to stay at home? And television. How are we going to have television in the fall when it seems they can't make any television right now? Bill Briou will join us to talk about that. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We have heard here in Hamilton plenty, and we've talked about it on the show plenty over the last number of days and weeks about Hamilton's financial situation in light of what is going on with COVID. Um, Not long ago, you'll recall, not long ago we heard we could be facing a $60 million deficit. And then on the weekend, Matthew Van Donchen from The Spectator reported that actually that number could be double. We could be looking at $120, $122 million deficit. And since municipalities are not permitted to run operating deficits, this becomes a huge problem. Well, then I read that it's not just us. And I I mean, we should have known it wasn't just going to be us, but then we hear it's not just us. Our neighbors next door are also talking about bleeding money. Burlington and Halton have now asked for a bailout, provincial, federal, whatever, just as Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger has. Mayor of Burlington, Mayor Marianne Mead Ward joins me now. Ms. Mayor, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Happy to be on the show. Um, how much are you, we're, we're in Hamilton talking $120, $122 million. What are the numbers in Burlington looking like that you could be facing? Uh, our most recent update from our financial folks was three, roughly three and a half million, uh, but it's a moving target, and and it started at eighteen million. So that's the order of magnitude of revenue loss uh, that we are experiencing as municipalities. We whittled that number down through a combination of um, decisions, expenditure restraint, layoffs, uh, you know, looking to reserves that were. Uh, built for the purpose of a rainy day. I call COVID-19 our super rainy tornado day. Mm. Um, mm. But we were able to get that down to three, about three and a half million. Uh, but we're, we're still uh, looking at the impact of additional costs that we're going to have to bear. So that's the revenue side of the, the impact of having uh, free transit, of having uh, programming closed for all of spring. Even as we open up our summer camps, the capacity is is way reduced. You know, you can only have eight campers and, and now you've got to have two staff. You have to have attendance in the washrooms. So you have extra costs and even there less revenue. So we know, uh, and, and a lot of that has been factored into our projections, but it's a moving target. When you say three and a half million though, I, I'm not being um, dismissive, but if I say, is that all, is that just my Hamilton side <laughs> talking? I'm, I'm wondering how you could be so much less than us. You face not all, and, and Burlington is smaller than Hamilton, but you face many of the same challenges. What, what's the difference? Why are we looking at well, a cataclysmic number and you're looking at one that I would think is at least manageable? Uh, it, it so it, it's a great question. So you're you're single tier over in Halton. So you have both the uh, what we would say the social services that sit at the region of Halton, as well as all your city services. So in Burlington, uh, we're a lower tier municipality, but we are of course part of the region. So I've just given you the city number. The regional number uh, is a different number again, and. Uh, 
they're they're still not at at, at the Hamilton level. So, and I can't explain your number, but it's uh, when you you would to, to compare apples to apples. Uh, region versus Hamilton, you would have to count up the deficit from each of the four municipalities and the region on top of that. And then you'd start to get to, uh, you know, a much, a much bigger number. It, it, it's like looking, um, Burlington is sort of one quarter of of the services that, that you're looking at in Hamilton. So, but the impact to us is significant. So three and a half million is a two percentage point tax increase just before we do anything else, if we had to make that up. Number is for, because I know you and the mayor of Hall, I mean, it was, it, you were reaching out together to try and get this bailout. Do you know what the overall number is? From all our municipalities? Not, we don't. Uh, okay. We, uh, yeah, we don't have, but, you know, I'm happy to, to get that. I'm sure the, uh, Promise will be asking as well, but it you know the the order of magnitude for the province is is probably if you look at the Federation of Canadian Municipalities has asked for ten billion dollar bailout package from the feds. If you look at the fact that Ontario has forty percent of the population of the country, take forty percent of ten billion, that's four billion. Mm. That's the overall yep. impact, and we know you know there's some big you know big numbers coming out of Toronto as well. But, you know, the the bottom line is that uh, we cannot sustain that level of loss to our budget. We cannot cut services. It it simply wouldn't be acceptable to say to our community, we're not going to have summer camp. We're not going to run transit at all. We're not going to do all of the things that you expect because we have to. We have to, you know, fill the gap uh, of this three million dollar hole. We we simply can't do do it that way, and we also can't turn to them when they've lost their jobs, when businesses are struggling, and say, "Here's a two percent increase just for COVID, and and if you want to account for inflation and all the other things that you normally do, it would just be an unacceptable hit." And so. You know, the reality is that the municipalities are on the front line of delivering services during this emergency. We only get nine cents on the dollar of tax collected. And it's simply not enough. As as more and more costs are, or, and programs and services are downloaded from other levels of government to the municipality, the costs of those are downloaded to the property tax base at, without the corresponding uh, funding to go with it. So that that's part of the bigger picture. We need a new relationship with our federal and provincial partners, and we need new funding tools uh, from them, a bigger share of the tax dollar, essentially. Uh, but this is, it's become very apparent we need that during COVID. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward about their deficit situation, their financial situation coming out of COVID. I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact that it's three and a half million compared to our 122 million. I know there's differences. I'm sorry. I just, I'm having a hard time getting over that mental obstacle right there. We'll have to dive back into that one with the folks here in Hamilton a little later. Anyway, that you're not on the hook for that one, Ms. Mayor. That's, that's, that you're fine with that one. Um, you have called this situation with trying to get this bailout. Now you've called this and I thought it was a really interesting reference. Halton's Shawshank redemption moment. Love the movie. Um, I'm pretty sure you're not talking about tarring the roof and drinking cold beer. So what was the reference you're referring to? 
The reference is uh, when um, they keep writing letters to get funding for their prison library. Oh, okay. That makes sense. That makes more sense than my idea. Yeah, they finally, although a beer on a on a rooftop patio <laughs> would be a nice idea right now. Uh, but yeah, it's one of my favorite lines in the movie, one of the hopeful moments where uh, they finally get their books and, and they're asked to stop asking. And he says, well, if one letter a week got me this uh, much, I'm going to start writing two letters a week. And and this isn't our first request either of the province or the federal government. So that's why I made that reference. We've asked before as the region, we've asked through uh, two, three of us sit on the Ontario Big City Mayor's Caucus. We've asked multiple times through that table. We've joined the Federation of Canadian Municipalities to ask for it. Uh, so, you know, at every turn, uh, us mayors have been asking for them, uh, the, the province and the federal government to step up, and uh, we haven't gotten anywhere yet. So we're going to keep asking, and, and then once we get, uh, <laughs> we'll see what we get. I may have to issue two resolutions a week. <laughs> what we but what's do. the, like, it appears as though that the, and I understand to a degree, because both higher levels of government have spent themselves silly so far and they're now probably in shell shock and so each of them are looking at the other one saying no you got to do it no you got to do it when the municipalities are coming what happens if they turn around and they say no what what's which i suppose is very possible what do you do then well then we um we say that they've backed out on their word and uh, we have had conversations, so the Ontario Big City Mayor's Caucus has had uh, Steve Clark, Minister of Municipal Affairs of House and Housing, Rod Phillips, M- Minister of Finance, have been on our calls uh, multiple times. We have another one being set up for next week and have expressed support and said they are willing to come to the table at every one of those meetings. They've said it publicly and they've said it privately. And so we're going to hold them to their word. And the federal government has also said that they are willing. And, and, you know, Bonnie Crombie, I think, said it best. You know, they're engaged in this stare down to see who's going to go first and, and then, you know, figure out, is it a 75-25, a 50-50, a 30-30-30? You know, that just they, what they need to do is say, yes, and here's, uh, here's what we can do for municipalities. Do you worry, though, that the fact that However you've done it, that you are, and I, I, again, I know you don't want to put the word only in front of three and a half million, but again, we're speaking from a perspective of 122 million down the road here. When you come to them with only three and a half million, do you have concern? They say, look, we've got other cities that are just buried right now. Get back to us after we figure out the real problem cities. Well, what our message is to uh, to the province and the federal government is don't penalize the, the cities that have been able to manage as well as we can. Uh, and that's why we're asking for a consistent, transparent formula that would be equitable across the entire province and then for the federal package across the across the country. So, for example, one of the uh, tools that's been used in the past is um, per capita or it's related to transit or it's related to certain infrastructure programs. You could figure out a way to be fair across all municipalities. And so there's proportionality um, as well. So larger cities, which are bleeding more, so Hamilton population versus Burlington, you're about three, four times our size. Um, about the same as the region size, though. Uh, you're you know, roughly 600, I think, so is the region when you count all four municipalities. So there should be some proportionality there and, and not penalize those, um, 
municipalities that have have budgeted well have as we we just heard our AAA credit rating at the region has been reinstated um you know that that's not equitable and that's not fair because our taxpayers shouldn't see ever increasing taxes which is what the end result is either we cut services or we raise taxes if we don't get assistance mm. and that's not fair for anybody anywhere in this country or this province Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward, always appreciate you taking some time. Thanks for doing this tonight. Thank you. Appreciate the interest. It is, uh, yeah. You, I mean, any was anyone else listening out there about to fall off their chair? Because I saw that number earlier, the three and a half million. And when I had the mayor on, I, I, I'm going to be honest. I really thought, oh, that's a little bit of something, but the real number is massively bigger. I almost fell out of my chair. Now I know bigger size, as she points out, Hamilton is roughly three times bigger, maybe more, but three and a half million versus 122 million. I I am, I, there's going to have to be some digging there to find out what is different. And and I mean, again, there's got to be differences, but boy, oh boy, what a, what a stunning difference in what two different municipalities right next door to each other are facing. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you're of working age, if you are not in high school or university, if you've moved past that, or if you haven't retired yet, you have probably done, I'm guessing, at least some of your work at home over the past number of months since we've gone into this whole self-quarantine COVID fiasco. I'm doing it. I'm doing it right now. I'm coming to you live from the basement studio in the Radley Homestead been doing it for weeks now. Thank goodness for technology, right? But with things loosening up a bit, there are now decisions being made about what happens next. Do we all start rushing back to the office? Do we stay at home? Have we crossed some kind of threshold that now says, you know what, why wouldn't we stay home? Are offices suddenly old-fashioned and unnecessary? I don't know the answer to that question. I know what I would like to do, I don't know what everybody else would like to do. Dr. Catherine Connolly is a professor of organizational behavior at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. She joins us now. Dr. Connolly, thanks for doing this today. Hello. Hello, you there? Yeah, yeah, sorry. There we go. No, thanks for joining us. Uh, Before we get to the broad question about what actually is going to happen long-term, let me ask you something else, and this is totally a guess on your part, I'm sure, What percent, if you had to guess, what percent of people who have been working from home over this period of time, do you think now would say they would like to continue working at home? Do you think it's the majority? Uh, It's hard to say. So, I mean, I think as long as the pandemic is on and people are feeling a little unsafe being out and about, I think most people, the vast majority would rather be safe at home and continue to work. What about the idea of just being able to be in your house and not having to get dressed or get made up or pack a lunch or anything? I mean, there's some advantages to doing it. There's also some disadvantages, but there's some advantages to to doing it, no? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, during normal times, people love working from home. This is one of the most requested perks that you could ever ask for in any job, really. And uh, you can't beat the commute. Um, you can have unlimited access to your snacks, to your fridge, you can exercise, your pets are there. People usually like it. And best of all, they like that feeling of control, right? That they're in their own space and they're in control of it. And there's nobody looking over their shoulder so much. 
That is that is true. Have you been doing any work from home during this pandemic? Absolutely. Yeah. And All right. True true confession time then. Have you done any work in your pajamas? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> of course not? No, no. I teach online. <laughs> oh, well, okay. So that, that, that would excuse that. I was going to say, I won't ask about underwear, but I bet if I put the question out to people and open the phone lines, there would be people calling in saying, yeah, of course I've done some work in my underwear during this. Why not? I'm at home. You talk about, though, the control, and that's part of it. I think there's a lot about the idea of working at home. It's very casual. It's very, you you know, as long as you're getting your work done, you can do whatever you want to do. And I I would think that the number would be very, very high of people who would say, I'd at least love the opportunity when I want to, to work from home, as you say, because that is a highly sought after perk that people have. Yeah, I mean, the big question right now is what's going to happen with childcare and uh, with camps being some open, some closed, with questions still about what's going to happen with the new school year. Um, it's, a, it's an issue that just wasn't salient before because most organizations that allowed people to work from home, um, they would have a rule saying you had to have childcare. You couldn't try to do both. Mm. And then, I don't know if you heard, uh, the Premier of Newfoundland was quoted as saying, oh, it should be no problem to work from home with kids. And clearly, the man has not met any children. Because (laughs) it's completely unreasonable to expect parents to just seamlessly work with no interruption in their day while they're trying to homeschool and look after the little ones. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, when I point out the advantages, um, clearly it's not a utopia. There, there are things for, I mean, for some people, maybe it is, but you're right. If you have kids, if you have to help them with schooling online, or if they're younger than that, and you just have to entertain them, um, not just easy to lock the door of your office and say, do what you want to do. You'll come outside and the house will be half burned down. Um, (laughs) well, let me ask you one other thing before we get again to the big question. What would we have done 10 or 15 years ago if this pandemic had hit? We could not have possibly done anything remotely like we're doing now, could we? No, no, not close. I mean, even just for things like the security of cloud storage and that type of thing, um, or video conferencing technology, even five years ago, I I think it would have been Hmm. um, pretty unworkable um, from a lot of standpoints. But we're fortunate. Um, that said, I mean, the technology isn't perfect, and a lot of people have um, difficulty with uh, internet access, even now, even still. Um, and so I think there's an, there's an assumption that it works perfectly all the time, um, but you've probably had dropped calls, or you've probably dealt with uh, um, sketchy video conferencing, um, and it's just because, especially in rural, remote areas, uh, there's just not the same access that there would be in uh, urban neighborhoods. Well, what does this mean now then? So yeah, there, there are there are pros, there are cons, but what we've seen now is that by and large, it can be done. So what does this mean for the long term? Is this is this that threshold I talked about at the very beginning that we've now crossed that's going to tell a lot of people to just work from home? Well, I think it opens the possibility a little bit more. Like I think if you asked most people about their ideal arrangement, They would be working at home for a few days and maybe in the office, maybe one day a week. And so that way they would still have the informal social connections with their colleagues. Their boss would see them, remember them at promotion time. Um, But they would still have um, more opportunities to work independently and and have that flexibility. I think the the real thing that opens up is for uh, people with disabilities. 
And a lot of organizations will have people request an accommodation to be able to work from home, and they'll be told, no, it's absolutely not possible. You could never do that job from home. Um, And then, lo and behold, that's kind of what we've been doing. Hmm. So I think for a lot of companies, it'll just give them an opportunity to kind of rethink some of the policies that they might have established in the 90s. And then now that we've been able to do this, I think uh, there's a, a more of a, a chance that we can take the good parts of this and keep them as we move forward. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about working from home, it is something that most of us have been doing. I'm doing it this very second, working from home. But what happens now that things are opening up a little bit? Are we all going to be heading back to offices or are things changing? Dr. Catherine Connolly is a professor of organizational behavior at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster. And Dr. Connolly, I think, again, as I said off the top, I think a lot of people, and you've touched on it, a lot of people love the idea, if only of the flexibility I'm less sure about their bosses. What do you think? I mean, if you are not sitting in front of your boss, if your boss can't keep an eye on you to monitor you, to see what you're doing, is it going to be a harder sell for them? Yeah. So this is the real wild card in any of these work from home arrangements is how is your manager actually going to react? And so a lot of managers just really don't like this and it's because they can't see you. And so some companies will install um, like a productivity monitoring system on your computer so they can track how many keystrokes you're making, how many times you move the mouse. Um, Other managers will insist on having uh, your webcam on the whole time so that they can can just (laughs) look at you (laughs) while you're working. And so that's not creepy at all for obvious reasons, but the managers are just scared, right? So they're worried that somebody's just going to be goofing off at the pool, eating bonbons, like just doing everything other than work. And so what the managers need to do is have some kind of agreement, right? But they also need to be looking at the actual objectives that somebody's supposed to be achieving by the end of the week and then go by that, like not just the time on task or how many uh, keystrokes per minute, but what, what did they actually accomplish? And, and that's, that's terrific blackmail. And I mean, blackmail is a bad word, I understand. But the, the what the bosses have at their discretion, I would think, is they can say, look, work at home all you want until you don't produce what I expect you to produce. And then you're going to have to come back in the office. If I love working at home, I'm going to work my butt off. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of uh, companies will find productivity will go up, actually. Like the, the fear is that it will go down, but it will go up. Um, and I think... Part of it is, yeah, people want to maintain this perk, and so they, they sometimes even overcompensate. Mm. So we think of a work-from-home arrangement as being great for work-life balance, but it can actually be the opposite, right? So you end up with people who feel like, okay, I'm home, and I work from home, and I'm home, so I'd better be working. And so they <laughs> yeah. don't have that distinction between, okay, my work day has not started yet, or work is done, now I'm going to do something else. There are people, there are professions that I've been kind of surprised have been successful, it seems, at creating a work-from-home situation. I mean, doctors, some doctors, obviously not all can do this, but some have been able to do assessments online or counselors can have sessions or um, I've even heard of people who repair things being able to walk other people through how to repair whatever item 
online. Um, it, it certainly, as I say, it certainly speaks to what is possible if we're open to the concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And things like the telehealth, I really hope we keep that. I mean, it's uh, it's more efficient. It saves money. You don't have to get infected when you're in the waiting room. Um, I think it's um, a way for physicians to see more patients. Um, and you can always follow up other, have follow-up uh, appointments afterwards, but at least for an initial consultation, it, it just makes so much more sense. The other hand is, though, that some professions seem to have really struggled with this, and, and mostly it's anecdotal, but we've heard teachers, you know, that, that students and teachers have had problems with this. Why would it be such a struggle for some when others have found such success at it? Um, I think you have to look at the broader organizational context. And I mean, teachers are an example of a very highly regulated profession, right? So you have people who have guidelines from their school, from the board, from the province, and they have to try to ensure that every student gets the same experience or roughly, roughly so. And so these are also people who didn't do any of the teleconferencing to teach before, but they're also trying to make sure that they do it kind of efficiently in an effective way at the same time. So it's a, it's a lot to ask for. If you contrast that with somebody who, I don't know, maybe somebody in sales, right, where you're used to being uh, your own decision maker, making uh, all the calls you want in terms of, uh, okay, I'll use this technology, I'll reach out this way, that person prefers something else, so I'll meet them where they're at. They're used to it, so it's just sort of a natural extension of what they were already doing. Yeah, I, um, and one other thing, and we're very short on time, but I, I have to believe that when it comes right down to it, one of the things that's going to be taken into consideration if you own a company or you run a company, there would potentially be huge amounts of sales not to have the overhead of an office building. If you can, if it, if people can work from home and do the job, why do I want to pay for a building? Oh, yeah, especially if it's in downtown Toronto, right, where real estate's expensive. So why not just allow people to be where they're at and then uh, connect online? It's a fascinating thing that we will be hearing a lot of, I'm sure, because I think there will be an awful lot of people pushing to keep doing what they're doing. Some will want to go back, but I think you'll see a lot, and it'll be up to bosses to decide whether they're okay with it or not. Dr. Catherine Connolly, really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There were reports, there's stories out in the last couple of days about a number of the TV networks in the States. They do this every year announcing their fall lineups. What's going to be coming out when the fall season rolls around? Well, there was one notable exception in the announcements for many of the shows anyway, and that is when are they going to start? Every year you would normally have this announcement, this big tour that the people, the media people come to, the critics come to, and they tell you when they're going to give you, they show you some of it, then they give you a date. Well, we don't know the date right now because nobody knows be filmed right now or produced or when they can be ready, when they'll be ready to launch. It's anybody's guess right now. Bill Briou um, is a well-known commentator and writer about TV. We love having him on. Everybody on the station loves having Bill on. He joins us now. Bill, how are you tonight? I'm well, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks for doing this. Always appreciate having you on here. Um, they call this Typically, the, the, the correct name is the fall television season. What are the chances, though, that the reality is it's not going to be the fall season at all? It's going to be the winter season or even the early spring season? Well, 
As you said, Scott, nobody really knows for sure. Uh, it's a lot like, you know, we're hearing every day that the NBA is going to come back or the NHL. Well, who knows? You know, not only do they have to figure out a way to do this safely, uh, you know, there's there's guilds and unions, there's unions involved in the sports world. Same with uh, making television shows. Uh, and, uh, and the networks have been coming up with plans and studios saying, hey, we can do this this way. But guilds are saying, wait a minute, you know, we want to keep our members safe, and we're not really sure it can be done quite that way yet. So a lot of the networks are saying we're going to be ready, but, you know, we just don't know 100% for sure. This is a really silly question, I realize, but I, I honestly don't know the answer to this. What is the time that it takes for a show, for the writers to have a script, for a show to be acted out and then to be produced and be ready to go on TV. I mean, can you do that in the span of a couple of weeks or three weeks? Or are we talking months and months and months? If they could start in July or even in early August, can they get this thing going by September? Yeah, it, it just depends, Scott, if it's a sitcom or a drama, you know, um, if it's a, a, a show shot before a live audience like the Connors, say, um, you know, yeah, they could get that up and running uh, without a lot of time. You know, they, they could literally come back in September and have it on the air in October. Um, but uh, some dramas are obviously much more complicated and harder to set up. Um, I know that some shows have already started to do virtual table reads. I was talking to one of the stars from Kim's Convenience, Andrew Fung, last week, and he was saying that the, the cast is gathered in front of their laptops and they do table reads just like a lot of us are doing Zoom meetings or messages, uh, and that's how they're they're starting to sort of get their scripts read uh, in hopes that they'll soon be able to go back to work. Um, but, you know, not every show can do this. Um, you know, take a series like Murdoch Mysteries. Uh, it's been ordered for a, a 14th or 15th season. Normally, they would have been back to work for about a, a month already shooting that show. They do 20, 18 or 20 episodes a year. So it takes a lot to gear up. And and, and also the writers have had to maybe write around the the virus. Uh, you know, you might see Murdoch do an entire episode where he's alone in jail. <laughs> you know, like, how are they going to do, like, you know, some shows like The Bachelor, are they going to have to stand six feet away while they hand each other a rose? So a lot of challenges ahead. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't really thought about The Bachelor. Any of those dating shows with the social distancing is probably going to lose some of the romance. Some. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, uh, there's a show that basically is, is all designed around uh, people who sh touching each other too soon. So uh, it's going to be <laughs> tricky. <laughs> you, know, there's, uh, um, you know, one of the networks announced yesterday, ABC, that they're going to bring back a show called Supermarket Sweep. That that's, they're only ordering three shows for fall. That's one of them. That's an idea that goes back to the 60s. But I'm thinking... Well, are, are people going to have masks on and gloves? Are you going to? Are there going to be shields in front of the cash registers? Like, uh, how will this work? So, a lot of a lot of questions. Well, and a lot of these shows, I, I wondered about. We don't see who is behind the scenes for these shows, and we don't see how many people are behind the scenes. And I've only I've seen a few because the Spectator Building, where I work when I'm not working at home, has been the scene of like it's been used for many, many, many films and, and TV shows while I've been sitting there. Yeah. And you see just the enormous number of people who are behind the camera. There may be only two people on the screen. There's 35 or 40 or 50 behind. 
Can you do it with less? Because what I'm wondering is, you know, the NBA, you mentioned NBA, NHL. They're talking about, okay, we're going to go and quarantine everybody for two weeks. Now we're all clean. So then we can go and live in our own little bubble world and do this. Well, could you do that with TV? Could you say all the actors are going to quarantine? We're going to do it with half the behind the scenes staff who are also going to quarantine. And then no problem. We can all just get this done. Yeah, those are things they're looking at, you know, even booking, like in the sports world, hotels for mm-hmm. uh, cast members to stay in during a shoot. Um, it's, it, you know, obviously actors require hair and makeup, uh, and um, they're, uh, in, in what I've seen from some of the discussions in the U.S. at least, they're going to be ask, asking some of the talent to do their own hair and makeup. Um, and, uh, you know, and if you're in a scene, um, wear a mask in between your dialogue. Uh, and literally, they've, they've written in rules about even, uh, you know, a romantic scene that, you know, that try not to have any embraces, uh, maybe one kiss, you know, like, and other people can't be on the set. Um, but on a normal working set, like of a, of a big uh, hour-long drama, there can be 100 people in the studio. Um, there's a lot of carpenters. There's a lot of just technical people, people doing on sound and lighting and everything else, and even craft services. You know, I mean, every set has a room where they go in and the, even the extras break for a meal at some point. And so that all of that has to be regulated and distanced off. And so it's, it's very, very difficult. Any romantic, any bachelor series involving the Amish is going to be in great shape this year. <laughs> Maybe no other one. Um, do, well, you know, as I'm talking about this, I'm wondering something, why do we even have a fall season anymore? Because now we have so many streaming services. Why do we still need to have a specific time of year when shows start? Why not just why don't the networks just do them whenever? Because people are going to stream them anyway. Yeah, that's a good question, Scott. Although I just want to add to your speculation about the the Amish that there might I can see Fox having a show called Mennonite, and then there's <laughs> never mind. Anyway, sorry, I shouldn't shouldn't have gone there. No, um, <laughs> I think uh, really you're right. We, Netflix every Friday drops like three new TV shows, fifty two weeks of the year. Uh, you know, Amazon and Disney Plus and all these new streaming services are constantly, constantly producing new shows and presenting them all year long. So this old model of starting in the fall is is kind of uh, falling down. I know even last fall, very few new shows from the American networks, and it's a challenge for the Canadian networks who used to go down and cherry-pick the best U.S. content and then put it on their schedules every fall. So... Um, I mean, ABC is only saying we're doing three new shows next season. NBC, one new show. They're doing another Law & Order spinoff, um, or Law & Order Organized Crime. And and um, so th- there won't have much to announce. They're going to be announcing next week CTV and Rogers, um, and we'll see what they have. But it's... Uh, it doesn't. It, I, some networks have already said we're not starting till January. I think the CW. Yeah. And no, there, there have been a number for sure. And I thought yeah. you were going to say Law and Order SPCA. That'll be the new one. Um, <laughs> Don't there, there your is, lips. Don't even say it out well, loud. Bill, there is precedent for this kind of, for this kind of delay. And I don't know that it's happened since, but what was the, when was the writer strike? Like 1980 something in there? And that delayed the start of the season. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, obviously the, 
the realities of TV 40 years ago and today are very different, but did it, do we recall, did that writer strike other than the, to the writers, did it have a negative effect overall by delaying the season? Well, it, it had many effects. One of them, it's really the reason for the birth of reality television. I think, you know, uh, 20, 25 years ago, there was a, a shutdown. And so the networks had to scramble for some non-scripted television to, to hurry up and put on the air. And that led to the birth of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and, uh, you know, Survivor. And um, 20 years later, those shows are still big hits. Millionaire recently has come back. Uh, survivors but on for 40 editions so uh, it, it made it a, a change and now especially with network TV there's so much competition with streaming services you're seeing more and more game shows and reality shows on uh, the old broadcasters you know you're, the voice is still a big thing this summer America's Got Talent is still a big deal and that's what you got more to look forward to I think because it's just gotten so competitive and expensive to make those dramas that the broadcasters, as their audience shrink, uh, just can't compete that way anymore. I'm frankly shocked. One thing that has really surprised me over the last two or three months as the networks are looking for stuff, because we've seen some creative things they've done. You and I may have talked about this. I mean, the, a number of months ago, uh, Disney did that thing with the Disney sing-along with people. And I mean, it was, it was very creative and I think it was very well received. A lot of people liked it. You had celebrities singing their favorite Disney songs with the words and the bouncy ball and, you know, very unique idea, but I'm shocked there have not been more attempts to go way into the vaults of beloved TV series that haven't had a lot of replays in recent years. And I can think of, you know, two or three, like Love Boat, for example, which was, you know, the height of schlock, I grant you. But <laughs> but if you brought the Love Boat back or Fantasy Island and played all those, I guarantee you there would be an audience for those. And I'm shocked they haven't done that. Well, you're right. And even right in Hamilton, CHCH shows uh, classic TV all day long, uh, Partridge Family and Hill Street Blues, uh, all kinds of goodies from the golden age, as mm -hmm. it used to be called. And yeah, there's an audience for them, and it's the perfect time for it. People are really looking for comfort food. This is an anxious time. People are stuck at home, and there, there's an embrace of uh, older television now, television you grew up with or have fond memories of. Uh, you know, if you grew up in an you know, age to happy days, for example, or MASH, or whatever. So, yeah, and, and there's even a, a YouTube channel called Encore Plus, uh, the Canada Media Fund ha helped to set up. And you can find old episodes of uh, Wayne and Schuster on there, a lot of Canadian mm. stuff. And their viewership has, like, tripled in uh, April and, and May because uh, people have found that there's a service that they can see these old shows. Well, and comfort food, it's a great way to describe it. I mean, it's, it's, it's in weird times. You like to have something that's familiar. But again, some of the stuff that CHCH shows, and they're doing a great job with it, but it are reruns that we've seen because like Happy Days has never gone off the air for right. three minutes. Yeah. yeah. I don't know when Fantasy Island or Love Boat or Charlie's Angels or WKRP in Cincinnati are those. I mean, there's some that are great old shows that just have seemed to go into the dustbin and no, never be seen again. Yeah, it's frustrating. I wish somebody would just program one-hit wonders and just keep showing them, you know, changing them mm. all the time. Because you're right, we've seen Three's Company for like 20 years now on uh -huh. all the channels, and you can memorize, and it's a stupid show anyway. 
<laughs> you know, there's better stuff out there. I think if you if you have Amazon, if you subscribe to that service, Amazon Prime Video, uh, I know they have like Carol Burnett reruns, even Red Skelton. You can find um, yeah, Dick Van Dyke shows on oh, there. Oh, every episode of the Dick yep. Van Dyke show is there, and uh, Family Affair. Now that there's a show mm. from the '60s, I was very young, uh, and it's one of those comfort food shows because it's about a uh, a fam, you know, family kind of drama with uh, Buffy and Jody and all this. Not a great show, but there's something about those relationships now when you watch on TV that I think people really are drawn to. Bill, I'll tell you the other show that they could bring back right now. It's an oldie. They could bring this back. I think you could do it with enough space for physical distancing. And I got the idea because Greg Brady, who is filling in for Bill Kelly here on the mornings here on 900 CGML right now, had posted a photo on Twitter today of the Battle of the Network Stars from back in the 1970s. And this picture that I'm looking at, I can't even identify all of them, but Dick Van Patten and Christy McNichol and Jan Smithers from WKRP and the, 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 I mean, uh, all these, um, I mean, uh, I'm just going through, I can't even name half them. The woman, what was her name, who was on Chips? Um, um, Anyway. I I can't remember her, but the uh, Wonder Woman. I mean, the time would stop. I mean, you you know, any of us who were, like uh, in high school would just drop everything and run to the TV set. This was, uh, you know, uh, porn before the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Howard Hessman is in this picture. Valerie Bertinelli, Ed Asner. Ed Asner was in a tank top doing sports, which I I still can't, but he looks old then. I can't, you know, he's still alive. You don't want to see Ed Asner in short shorts. You're right. But but (laughs) you you, you had, the classic was uh, Conrad, Robert Conrad. He's in this picture. Yeah, he's in the picture. He would do those ads where he said, knock this battery off my shoulder. He was always playing the tough guy from Wild Wild West. So he challenged um, the, the star Gabe Kaplan from Welcome Back, Cotter. The two of them had to do a race around the track, and Conrad lost. And he was so mad, he said, double or nothing, let's do it again. And it was like Howard Cassell is on the sidelines calling the action. Uh, He's in the picture. classic stuff. And, yeah, I wish they would rerun Battle of the Network Stars at least, if, if not do a new one. Well, do a new, I mean, I don't know that you would get any celebrities willing to do it now, because I don't know that it would be cool enough for most of them to want to do, and their agents would tell them not to and all the rest, but I don't know. There's, there is gold still that, you know, if there's a delay in television and, and people who are under 25, Bill, they're probably listening going, you people are nuts, but I don't know that they're the ones watching television now anyway. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I, they're watching YouTube or streaming if you want to appeal to your audience, I, I just can't believe that those shows have not made a return yet. Well, you know, if you had uh, Drake running against, uh, you know, like if, if you had people that younger viewers were interested in, I think they would have huge numbers. Um, I know one of the stumbling blocks back then, the networks would uh, intermingle a little freer. Uh, now, mm. you know, you're not going to have CBS entering a race and giving promotion to NBC, perhaps, or Fox or whatever. It's just they stay in their separate lanes, which is too bad. Part of the fun of that show was the mix of all the people on TV in one place at one time, and um, that was part of the charm. It is a uh, it is a situation. We're going to have to see what uh, what happens with all this. But um, listen, Bill, I always always appreciate having you on here, Bill Briou. You can find him online. Uh, great writing, great guest to have. Any, we ha- love having you every single time, Bill. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. Anytime you want to talk Battle of the Network Stars, I'm here. <laughs> I got you. Got to go look up this picture and play a game and see how many of them you could name. If I had ten minutes, I could probably come up with. 
at least half to two thirds. I bet you could hit almost every single one of them. A lot of them for sure. Yeah, that's true. Bill Breu, thanks for the time. You're welcome. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.